Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. We're available through all major podcasting channels, and you can find us at johnwarrenmedia.com. Our special guest today is Warwick Fairfax. He's the author of Crucible Leadership and the founder of Crucible Leadership, a philosophical breakthrough, practical breakthrough in turning business and personal failures into the fuel for igniting a life of significance. He's been hailed by Forbes as offering compelling insights for anyone who would like to wake up feeling inspired by their work, but doesn't. As I said, he authored Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. In this book, he discusses for the first time his thoughts and actions in launching the John Fairfax Limited Takeover and explains what he learned about himself from that devastating failure, who he was and was not. And we're going to ask him about that in a moment. He shares insights from his experience and interviews, other leaders who have leveraged their crucible moments to live and lead with significance on the on his podcast, Beyond the Crucible, available through all major podcasting channels. He holds an undergraduate degree in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford University and earned his MBA from Harvard Business School. He lives in Annapolis, Maryland with his wife, Gail. They have three children who are in the process of developing their own unique paths to lives of significance. Warwick, welcome. Well, thank you, John. Very good to be here. Well, I want to ask you, we were we were introduced by our mutual friend, Rick Kempton. And when Rick has mentioned you over the years, he knew that we would relate well for several reasons. And I'm wondering, especially for those who might not know your story, if you would just simply talk about the story of your life, your childhood through recent years and the work that you do today, because it is a fascinating story. Well, thanks, John. Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess the place to start is I grew up in this 150-year-old family media business in Australia, where I'm from. You probably figure the accents from somewhere, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's Australian. Uh, I lived in the U.S. for close to 30 years. And my, my wife's American. But yeah, I grew up in this 150-year-old family media business. It was started by a believer, as I would say, a strong uh, business person for Christ as I've ever come across. Um, he started it in 1841. He left England. Uh, he wrote an article in a paper he had about a corrupt lawyer, and uh, the, the guy sued him twice. The judge found in John Fairfax's favor, my ancestor. But at that point, it's like, well, you know, he was, in, he was bankrupted by the court costs. So he said, forget this, I'm moving to another country. And um, he ended up founding this, uh, new, well, buying into the Sydney Morning Herald. He actually, uh, in part, got some funding from the elders of his church. So he was an elder of his church, wonderful husband, great dad. His employees loved him. He did everything right. And so fast forward over the last 150 years, the company grew to be a very large media company with newspapers, magazines, TV stations, 
used print mills. Uh, it had the, the U.S. equivalent of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the major opinion leaders. So my whole life, I felt like it was my calling, my duty to go into this family business. Uh, undergrad at Oxford, like some, my dad and some other relatives, worked on Wall Street. Got my MBA at Harvard Business School. And so in 1987, as I was coming back, my dad was in his 80s and died in early 87. I was from his third marriage. And there was sort of rumors that the company was ripe to take over. The, company, the family had about 50% of the shares. So the stock price of the company rocketed up. I and you know, my parents had previously thought the company wasn't being well run, wasn't being run along the ideas of the founder. So in my youthful uh, naivety, at age 26, believe it or not, I launched a $2.25 billion takeover. Mm. And, you know, things went wrong right from the start. Uh, other family members who were involved in the business sold out. Uh, for some reason, they didn't want to be uh, trapped in a private company run by a 26-year-old. I mean, who would? What rational person would? But, uh, <laughs> so, you know, they sold out to the major parties, hundreds of millions each. So, and this is the height of the stock market uh, before the October 87 stock market crash. So that stock market crash had asset sales. By the end of the year, 87, we had an unsustainable level of debt. I brought in new management that increased operating profits 80%, which would seem to justify my premise that it wasn't as being well run, but the debt was too, so high, it didn't matter what management did at an operating level. Mm. So three years later, 1990, Australia got in a big recession, newspapers are very cyclical, and the company had to file for bankruptcy. So here I was trying to preserve the company the image of the founder, stop it being taken over, and what I did directly contributed to the company falling out of family hands. So believe it or not, that is the short version of what happened, but it was devastating in so many ways, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit, but... I was a believer during this process. The faith in my family, as pound money go up and sometimes, you know, the Christ-centered faith goes down a bit. Well, they were all good people, but more traditional faith, not so much right. evangelical Christ-centered. And I became a believer at an evangelical church, evangelical Anglican church in Oxford. So, yeah, so I was a believer through all of this, but yeah, that was a pretty challenging time. So yeah, that's, that's the short version. And, and, then, and then talk just for a moment uh, about your transition from that experience to, I assume it was after that experience that you moved to the U.S. and eventually to Annapolis. Can you just talk about that for a moment? Yeah, yeah. So I met my wife in Australia. She's from Northern Ohio, but, you know, American, so... Once the company went under in late 1990, I just couldn't stay in Australia because there was a time in which my you know, face was in the front covers of newspapers, on TV. I was actually recognized going to a shopping mall. I mean, it's a weird experience, but there was a time oh my goodness. many years ago when I was. What, what, was that, was, what was that like? I'm sorry to interrupt, but what, what did no. that feel like when you you know, turn a corner and, and, a, and somebody flashes a picture or stares and points ah, or whatever. Yeah, it was it was awful because I'm basically a reserved, if not shy person. So, yeah, the day that we had to file for bankruptcy, there were three TV networks camped out on our door, the equivalent of CBS, ABC, NBC. Oh, no. 
my, my poor wife was going to go to the grocery store that day, and she decided, hmm, maybe I'll go another day. <laughs> so, oh, no. you know, so she kind of stayed in five. But, um, yeah, it was just, yeah. And, I mean, back in those days, you know, I had editorial cartoons done of me. There was one of me, mm. you know, looking like a Mongol raider, you know, young, they used to call me young white. My dad was so white, Fairfax. Uh-huh. You know, young Genghis, Fairfax, destroyed in a day or something that took 150 years to build. And there was another cartoon that said, how do you start a small business? Give Warwick Fairfax a big one. Mm. I mean, you know, it's never good to have editorial cartoons done of you. So, yeah, it was, Part of me, once all that went under, all went under. I just wanted a fresh start, and fortunately, in America, people don't know a whole lot about Australia. You know, kangaroos, opera house. <laughs> you know, they've never heard of Fairfax Media, which I was delighted about. But uh, your average person hasn't. So, right. Yeah, I just wanted to escape. In fact, I don't know. A few months, a year later, they even wrote an article. You know, my life as an exile. You know. Mm. Uh, when when I went back for my mother's funeral a few years ago, said, "Well, Warwick back from exile." I mean, you know, I don't think of the U.S. as a place you, you know in exile. It's not, mm. not a bad place to live, but there's this just this meme, this notion that you know, even to this day, that I'm in exile. You know, that mm. I left the country and. Yeah, so it was all very public, so it was a very strange experience. So you not only experienced the worst kind of business challenge at, at a at a very high public level, I've never, I've been involved in lots of uh, business acquisitions and some successes, thankfully, and some failures, but, and so I can relate to your, your story there, but, but then you encountered kind of the cruelty, and this was, this was in the pre-social media uh, era, yeah. uh, but but you kind of got canceled in the public by some major news outlets who uh, who kind of followed you around, and uh, it sounds like the equivalent of cancellation today back then was uh, perhaps editorial cartoons. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it was basically at least until recently, my Wikipedia entry, and I do have one, was something like young, hot-headed kid could have had it all, blew it. So they would see me as a pun, and with some justification, as young, naive, idealistic. I mean, they didn't think of me as corrupt, so that's probably a saving grace. But um, that meme, if you will, hasn't really changed over the decades. Mm. But yeah, which is a whole other story. But yes, yeah, so I was happy to move to the U.S. and start a new life, which was not easy, needless to say. It was very difficult to come back from this crucible. Mm. Well, and, and just talk for a moment. I don't want to dwell on this, but I see so many people who who live in a world of, of fears and regrets. And, and you, you talk about that in, in, your, in your book and in, in some of your other work that I've read. And, and I, I'm just wondering, what was, there probably isn't a distinctly lowest point, but the, at the low point, what did you go through? What did you experience? Can you just talk about that for a moment? And I, I want to I talk about the high points. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So the 90s were very... Um very difficult years for me. Basically, I felt like I'd let my parents down, my family down. Mm. I mean, while the company was sold to other people, so it was like a $700 million plus company, 4,000 or more employees. It's not like people lost their jobs. Somebody else over a few years, you know, it changed hands. But the instability, the sense of gosh, with the Fairfax family there, there was a sense of, a greater sense of safety. And, you know, we, you know, it was a, a place where there was editorial independence and 
there was just a greater degree yeah, of, of, of safety. So, but probably more than whether it's instability in a company and letting go my family, the single hardest thing was I felt like I'd let God down. And mm-hmm. that was, that was absolutely crushing for a believer. And the reason I say that is, as I mentioned, the company was started by John Fairfax, a man with a great vision and really, really strong faith, a stronger business person to Christ as I've come across. So when I came to Christ at an evangelical Anglican church at Oxford, I felt like, and this is dangerous, it's obvious what God's plan is. It's obvious what his sovereign will is. Mm-hmm. He wants to resurrect the company in his image, not to say Jesus lives on the front pages, but more how people are treated and the ethics of how journalism is done. So I felt like, well, this must be what I'm here on this earth for. I even had well-meaning you know, folks in Australia who were you know, older than me say, we've been praying for decades that God would raise up somebody up at the heart of the media. You're an answer to prayer. Wow. You know? yep. so They're well-meaning obviously. Mm-hmm. But here I am an answer to prayer for some. And so so I felt like God had a plan and I blew it. Now, I was about in my early 30s, so poor theology, but it was crushing. Uh, so that was probably the lowest moments were maybe the first half of the 90s. Where I, and I had a Harvard MBA. In theory, you meant to be and an Oxford degree. In theory, you meant to be somewhat smart. <laughs> and I, I, I look back at myself and I kept saying, how could I be so dumb? How could I be so dumb? Yeah. How could I assume that other family members would want to be trapped in a private company run by a 26-year-old? How could I have used the advisors that I did? I mean, maybe more than you want to know, but I know you're in the world of finance. Right. It's just, just, and I talk about this in the book. This shows you how dumb I was, in a sense. I retained some top merchant bankers, as we say, investment bankers in the U.S. In early 87, I said, look, you know, the stock price is going up. There might be a corporate raider. This is the 80s, the era of corporate raiders. Something might happen. I need to be first and whatever. You know, so the crusader going in, guns blazing, that kind of mentality. Right. A lot of youthful idealism. So what do I do? And they said, you know what, Warwick? The numbers don't add up. It's, it's just really, we would not recommend launching a takeover or trying to privatize it. If and when somebody does something, gather the family, figure out something then, but don't do it. It just is really not a good decision. These are people who are experts, very well-respected uh, merchant bankers in Sydney. Yep. I ignored their advice. Mm-hmm. Then I went with the people that are more, oh, I don't know, out there type of investment advisors who had done deals with some of the big corporate raiders in Australia. So they were successful, but they did stuff with corporate raiders, you know? Indeed. So it's not it's not like we're consulting people without a track record, but they didn't have the same, let's say, professional ethics way of doing something at a blue chip investment banquet, if you get my drift. And so I ignored the good advice and listened to the bad advice. Again, what was I thinking? And so there was a lot of, how could I have done this? How could I have been so dumb? How could I have been so dumb? Mm. Still to this day, it's hard for me to fathom. Because normally I'm a very careful decision maker, but... Um, there are reasons, you know, emotion, again, maybe more than a listen from one another, but of some other family members had thrown my dad out as chairman 11 years before in 1976. So was there a sense of, you know, not payback, but I don't know. I don't know what was going through my head subconsciously, but there was all sorts of emotional things. My dad having died, clearly I wasn't thinking clearly yeah. or rationally or fully rationally. So 
the, the long answer to your story is all those thoughts were sitting around my head in the first half of the 90s. So, yeah, it was, they were dark times. Well, I get that, and I, I really have to, uh, you know, here in, in, in mid-conversation, thank you for your uh, transparency. And I, I don't want to, uh, again, focus too much on, on these these darker times, but as you were just talking, I was thinking about the work that I do today is with primarily with Christian nonprofits, a lot of Christian schools around the country. And so I see this miniature version of, of this uh, phenomenon that you just described, it, it usually involves a situation with creditors or a creditor uh, wherein the organization wants to you know, get out from under a debt obligation because maybe enrollment or support or financial strength, the uh, cash flow has diminished. And then there's this whole industry, and it sounds like you encountered some of these people. I, I call it the loan-to-own industry. It's a, there's, a, there's kind of a predatorial group, and these are some of these are very legitimate Wall Street firms, and some are not so legitimate, and they kind of hidden away all throughout the country, throughout the U.S. and throughout the world. And uh, yes, they'll help for the short run, but embracing them and doing a transaction with them sometimes causes uh, a, a demise down the road. And it sounds like you might have encountered some of those folks. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good analogy. I and mean, as you would know, in Silicon Valley and other places, the, the venture capitalists, some would call them vulture capitalists, and they'll help you, but they want a big chunk, chunk of the equity. And um, yep. and there's a cost. I'll tell you how to run your firm, which is typically for the short term rather than long term value. And, and, you know, I'm sure it works and the model may make short term financial sense. But, you know, th- there's a cost with uh, some yep. of these private equity folks. Well, I, um, so. I don't want to make them angry, but you're absolutely right. There's a there's a a predatorial kind of a vulture-ish kind of environment, uh, even even with those firms that do good, and some of them do, but they're, they're, you, you mentioned uh, kind of a corporate raider mentality that existed back in the 80s, and it's, it's still alive and well today, but we've had, we had quite a season of that. I want to shift gears, and there's something that, uh, if I had to say this is the, the highlight of my conversation with you, this is what I've been looking forward to asking you, and it, it's you're going to probably laugh at this question, but it's the first step in bouncing back from these crucible experiences. I see so many people who struggle, who, and, and I know you you had you mentioned a decade, the decade of the '90s, and I I get that it's not a point in time, and you don't just experience something like you went through and then just turn on a dime, but that first step in the journey to recovery is so critical. Can you talk about that? What What is the first step from bouncing back from these crucible experiences? You know, I'll tell you what it is for me. I mean, I have a more generic answer, but for me, it was it was my faith. It was my faith in Christ. I mean, I just, you know, when you go through a crucible, it either pulls you further away from your fundamental values and beliefs or it pulls you closer. It's a binary choice. Mm. And more generically, we talk about crucibles in which you know, you either kind of wallows, you'll start for yourself high under the covers and let the next 30, 40, 50 years go by and say, this wasn't fair or it was my fault. How, how am I going to bounce back and use it in the service of others? And so for um, to me, you know, that was really a, uh, a choice. And so I just lent in more deeply to my faith. And I came to realize that God loves us all unconditionally, he loves me unconditionally, 
despite my mistakes, if he'd wanted my takeover to succeed and me being in control of Fairfax Media, he would have. But, you know, he doesn't need my stuff. He doesn't need a believer running some big media company in Australia. It's not wrong, obviously. Right. His sovereign will is much more than momentary companies or, you know, ventures that we do. And so I realized he loves me because of who who I am. And even despite my mistakes, if, if he had allowed that to happen, then he must have must have another plan for my life. So that was that was the key. I mean, there was several scriptures I went over and over again. One was First John two seventeen, the wilderness desires pass away, the man who does the will of God lives forever, focusing on God's will. And another I often think of in Philippians three, it's really seven, three fourteen, but it starts out as but whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Mm-hmm. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the thousand worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, or in the early NIV, rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So I just I just clung to that. And so that was the foundation of my faith in Christ. You know, having a wife that loves me unconditionally, having, you know, young kids at the time eventually finding work I could do and not screw up. But I just lent more and more into my faith, almost like, you know, a mask on a ship in a stormy sea. I'm like clinging with my fingernails into the wood. It's just, I just dug in deeper. And, and, and what, uh, you know, wasn't easy, but that was probably the key for me. Well, and I, I can entirely relate from my crucible, to use your terminology, my crucible experience did you find the the experience you just described where you clung to your faith? Did you find going through the, the, the big crucible experience that we're talking about in your life, did you find it when you came out the other side at some point in the 90s, did you find all of that very clarifying? And was there a sweetness to the experience that, that you kind of landed in after after you went through those dark days? I did. I mean, I think a crucible has the potential of, of serving you and hopefully serving others. And so I, I just I came to learn a lot of lessons. I mean, probably the biggest one was I was living somebody else's vision, not even my dad's vision. He wasn't living his own vision of life. It was all the founder. He was more of an entrepreneur. Funnily enough, those entrepreneurial genes mm-hmm. faded over the generations. So, you know, my dad would have been a better philosopher than a businessman. And, yeah, I'm more of a reflective advisor. So I was, I was not living my design from my perspective, my God-given design. You know, as I say, reflective advisor, writer, thinker. I'm not, you know, chief executive type. So, you know, I was able to live in light of who I was, not living somebody else's uh, vision, which was all about like duty, honor, country. I've never been in the military, but just that whole notion, almost like the royal family had no choice. Right. I was able to find my own way. So that was was key. And I began to find things in which I could serve others after a brief, after a stint for a few years in an aviation services company doing business and financial analysis. You know, back at the time, I could do financial analysis and spreadsheets and all. Then I got into executive coaching through a mid-career assessment that said I had a good profile. And I began to find my leadership voices. I was asking people questions. 
And that turned into being an elder at, at my church, which is like a 2,000-plus non-denominational church in Annapolis. In 2007, right about that same time, I joined the board of Annapolis Ray Christian School, which obviously you, you helped us out with, and, you know, large K-12 Christian school. Right. And all those things, like being on those two nonprofit boards, feeling like I was involved with organizations whose missions I passionately cared about, and I was able to use my natural ability, which is more of advisory, asking questions and encouraging. All those began to build my self-esteem and self-worth back brick by brick, drop by drop, as I was able to live more in light of my gifting and live my own vision for my life, not somebody else's. But it, it took a while, but you know, as the 90s ended and the early 2000s started into you know, mid-2000s, I began to have a better idea of who I was. And so, yeah, those were all turning points on the way, as I call them, drops of grace, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, and you talked a moment ago about God's sovereignty, and, and I almost interrupted you, and I, I try not to do that and try to ask open-ended questions and let these conversations just sort of flow, but I I have to ask almost a rhetorical question between us, because I know the answer to the question, mm-hmm. but it's an important one. What are you talking about when you stress the fact that a person's vision should be anchored in faith? Are you talking about, and I know the answer is yes, but are you talking about a specific kind of faith, or are you just talking about faith in anything? Well, here's how I put this. So in my book, and as I'm talking on the podcast, you know, I'm a coach at heart, so I have a specific answer for my life. But I say people in general have to anchor their leadership in faith. Now, for me, it's my Christian faith. For others, it might be a different religion or it might be a philosophy. I'm a great believer that every, everybody has a God-given right to choose their own path. So I'm not like forcing people to live what I do, what I do. But for me, absolutely, it was in my Christian faith, my Christ-centered faith, uh, Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. Absolutely, that was that was the anchor for my soul that helped me claw my way back. And so, as I'm moving ahead, and we'll talk more about my book that you know, comes out. Um, later in October, in October 19, you know, I'm focused on following God's path, His steps. I'm mm-hmm. not looking to build an empire for Jesus or something that, that is uh, fraught with temptations and uh, take you on the wrong path. So I'm just totally focused on, Lord, you, you know, show me the next step, because faith is, is faith. He will never give you a 10-year plan. It just doesn't happen, because that wouldn't require faith. I'm all for planning. I love planning. But, right. you know, it doesn't always work that I mean, you have to have a plan for your business. I'm all for that. But in terms of your life and next steps, have a plan. That's all good. But, you know, what they say what, about God laughing at our plans. But I just want to walk each step in my business and my life with the Lord. Saying, okay, Lord, what's the next step? And he's always made it clear to me. You know, through prayer, got to be in line with scriptures. You want to obviously check it with some believing friends. I mean, there are systems you put in place if you're wise. Mm-hmm. and how to make decisions. But, yeah, I mean, my whole life, I want to be anchored by Christ and the Lord's wisdom. And, um, yeah, that is the anchor for my soul. Yep. You know, we have, a, we have a saying at our church, a chapter a day for the rest of your life. 
I try to do that every day to pray. It's like exercise, spiritual exercise. So, yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, you you did. I want to just clarify one thing, though. You you speak very graciously, and, and I think we all should, about people of other faith. And there are apologetics ministries, even kind of, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some people call them muckraking uh, ministries that, that spend a lot of time accusing others and pointing fingers and the like. But you would agree with me, I believe, that truth is true and absolute truth is true Mm -hmm. and the absolute claims of scripture are true you leave the door open for because people throughout the world do have other faiths but christianity is either all 100 percent true but because of its exclusivity claims the exclusivity claims of scripture it's Mm -hmm. either it's either all true or it's not true altogether sure yeah yeah no i absolutely believe in uh in what the scripture says about, you know, some would say truth is a person in, in Jesus. So, yep. yeah, I mean, I'm an elder at a evangelical Christ at a church. Absolutely. Right, right, I mean, right. I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, John 14, 6, you know, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe scripture, but I'm not one of these people. Maybe it's coming from Australia or I don't know quite what, in evangelical Anglican background. I'm not here beating people over the head saying, you know, unless you believe what I believe, you go to hell. And I leave the consequences or, or the path that people want to take between them and, and their make it, whoever they think that is. Yeah. They, they have the, the right to make their own choices. I'm not Understood. here beating people over the head. Yeah. But absolutely, my own view is very clear about what Scripture says and Right. what truth is. And again, you could say truth is a person, and that's Jesus. Well, yeah. and I, I bring up the point because I tend to focus from time to time on postmodernism and this sort of post-truth world that we're in that basically says that, in fact, I, I heard a prominent political figure yesterday in the news saying, you know, what, what is your truth on this particular matter? And, and truth is not subjective. It is objective and absolute. I'm wondering... And this this is an interesting concept that I know that you talk a lot about. You talk about the power of authenticity and vulnerability in leadership. And this this is a struggle for so many of us, and yet you call them out as very important, especially as one embarks on this recovery. And you've, you've walked this out. Talk, talk about the authenticity and vulnerability in leadership and how, why it's so important. You know, it's funny, as we're talking about faith, this is going to sound a bit sarcastic, but if you really believe Jesus is who he says he is, it shouldn't be that, it shouldn't be that hard, well, in one sense, to be authentic and vulnerable. You, 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 um, just, and you just said a mouthful theologically there, and you're, <laughs> you're absolutely right. That if, if we really believed what the, that chapter a day that you're talking about, because I do that too, if we really understood it and embraced it, we, we, we'd get this, wouldn't we? Wouldn't even be necessary to answer that question. No. So from a, a faith perspective, from a Christian faith perspective, we're children of God where we don't need to earn our way to heaven. We are already saved. If we declare Jesus as our Lord and Savior, there's obviously there are signs of repentance, which means if you say, I believe, and your whole life is one of unrepentance, then James is question whether you really believe and that's a whole nother argument but but basically you know if you really believe then you are saved 
and therefore there's nothing you can more you can do to earn your way to heaven. And so part of the reason people don't want to be vulnerable is, oh, if they saw the real me, I wouldn't be accepted. Well, whose acceptance do you care about? Ultimately, for the believer, it should be God. If God accepts you, yep. then what does it matter what everybody else thinks? Now, somebody, if people think less of you because you're hurting people and damaging them, ripping them off, and stealing and you know firing thousands of people, okay, they might have a point. But then the point is not only would other people be annoyed at you, God would feel sad for you, put it that way, if you're, because you're clearly living outside of his will if, you, if you're damaging other people. So basically, being vulnerable, saying, hey, you know, I've got flaws. And I talk about vulnerability for a purpose. In a corporate sense, you don't need to talk about every stupid thing you've done. I mean, like, right. if somebody says, gosh, I've had a hard time with this business. Yeah, when I was, I was in my 30s, yep, I had a hard time. I had a couple of failed businesses. That's vulnerability for a purpose. If they're talking about a tough business challenge and you say, let me talk to you about my DUI when I was a teenager, it'd be like, okay, you're oversharing. What's that got to do with what I'm going through? So, you know, <laughs> vulnerability for a purpose, not, not vulnerability just to show how, how wonderful you can be a vulnerability, you, you know, in context with a good heart and a good purpose. Right. But more and more, especially young people, they want authentic. They want real. They don't want the plastic face and, uh, you know, and the, and the wonderful speeches that are perfectly crafted. They, they just want, they want the real you. And if, if your self-esteem is based on, as a believer, on what Christ did on the cross, your self-esteem should not depend on other people. It should purely depend on the one above. So if you really believe that Jesus is who he said he was and he, that he died for us, it shouldn't be a problem. When we, you know, but we all struggle with self-esteem, which says that you know, we sometimes get off the altar at times. You know, we kind of we forget that we are whose we are, so to speak. So, right. But in theory, if you really believe that Jesus says, you know, is who He says He is, and that you're a child of the King, then we should all have pretty good self-esteem. But it just shows you that we're all weak and frail. Well, and. And you yeah. you talk about the church, and, and it's interesting, the juxtaposition between, I'm going to use the word transparency, even though it's a little more than that, that your transparency, even in this conversation and in and your own podcast and in your book and in other other uh, media appearances and writing and, and that kind of thing, you're really transparent about your story and the impact that Jesus Christ has had on your life. And yet, there's a thing that goes on in the church, and I don't always articulate this well, but it's it it sort of is uh, reminds me of of Paul's admonitions to the Pharisees, where we kind of if a person does share some vulnerability and regrets and fears and those kinds of things, or even their story, sometimes we tend to exclude. We tend to I'm not even talking about social media. I'm talking about in the church itself we kind of characterize people and we kind of have a, these are the spiritual folks and these are the not so spiritual folks. And I'm wondering if you could just comment about that in the church itself. You've obviously overcome this because you're very comfortable talking about your own personal challenges. And it's a big issue that we can't, uh, we don't have the time to really thoroughly address here, but isn't, isn't it a problem in the church? Well, it is. And and to be clear, the reason I talk about what I went through is not just to, say, you know, oh, woe is me, or the amount of money I lost in theory. 
right. is to help other people bounce back from their own crucibles. And I think I it's mean, terrific reason, that you do that. As, as a banker, I, I think about, wow, these things are always shrouded in confidentiality and nobody tells their story. Well, but what they, a wonderful they, they, life lesson for young people. I have a young audience here and what a wonderful life lesson that a man who's kind of been there and done that and then and then turned to God in faithful reliance has recovered and is now sharing his story in a meaningful way. I think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. And just a you asked an interesting question, but I mean just in terms of why I'm doing what I'm doing, you know, I shared my story in two thousand eight at my church in Annapolis and um this brief tangent. It was basically the pastor was giving a, a message about David, who was being uh, pursued by Paul, uh, by Saul, who wanted to kill him. And he was in the cave of the duel and feeling sorry for himself, a righteous man, falsely persecuted. I don't see myself that way. I've got a lot of troubles with myself. But when I saw how my story, even though how many other media moguls are there that had heard it, like none, somehow by if my story could help them, and weeks and months after, they said, "Why well, your story was so helpful?" So really, I share my story not just to share it because it seems like it helps people. That's the, that's the only reason I'm doing this. I'm a private person. I'm, I'm not, I don't normally, would normally get into all of this. But Indeed. it's purely to help people. That's the whole point. And so, yeah, from a church setting, there can be this sense that, oh, you, know, you don't want to talk about failure and oh, you, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just great. I feel blessed and there's that nice spiritual plastic smile you have on your face and everything good. Oh, it's all good. Yep. I'm blessed. You know, and yes, <laughs> it can be true in a sense, but there can be a, a lack of authenticity because if they really knew who I was, oh, they wouldn't want me as an elder because my gosh, this person is really broken. Well, yep. we're all broken. It just depends on how you deal with it. So I think it's, the sad thing is people who are in the church are just as human as people who are outside the church. That's the reality. The divorce rate amongst believers is very different than the divorce rate with non-believers. So it's not easy. And it's sad how often I've seen in different Christian organizations I've been in which Christians acting very unchristian-like. Mm. You know, there's one of my least favorite quotes is by Gandhi. He said, I like your Christ. I'm not so sure about your Christian. Mm. But what I hate about that truth. quote yep. is that there's some truth in it. That's why I don't like it. Yep. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I think within the, within the church, I mean, it's not a good way to attract people. People can see phonies a mile away. What people want is real, is vulnerable, is, is authentic. That brings people to the gospel, not the reverse. There's a certain amount I mean, of, we, we've met the enemy and it's us. Yeah, well, and, and you look at, you know, the life of Paul, who's spread the gospel to non-Jewish audiences, so-called Gentiles. He ran around pre-Damascus either killing or ordering Christians to be killed. That's a pretty big deal, mm. you know, killing Christians, you know, or having them killed and being so zealous. Well, how do you move on from that crucible? How do you kind of get over that? Somehow, through the Lord's strength, he must have to be able to write all the, the letters that he did. But people knew who he was. Initially, it was like, this guy? I'm not having it in my home. Oh, this guy's come to Jesus. Oh, right, sure. You know, yep. there's a little skepticism, but if Paul was open about who he was, so you know, I think most of us haven't done quite that level of what he did. So we just need to be real and just realize 
the Jesus love for us doesn't depend on you know some sugar coating plastic spiritual veneers. Oh, That's not helpful to anybody, and doesn't attract people to the gospel. So, yeah, there's so much to say there, and. Uh, you've been so gracious with your time. I want to take a few more minutes of your time and ask you a couple more questions. One's a, one's a layup. One's really easy. And the other is almost impossible to answer in, in a podcast <laughs> setting. But I, but I want to remind the audience that your book is coming out uh, soon. It's called uh, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance by our guest Warwick Fairfax. Work. What date does it come out again? When can we when can we get our it hands on it? Comes out October nineteenth. Okay, so, terrific. Yeah. Well, the easy question, the layup is okay. You titled the book with "Life of Significance" in the subtitle. I know we're going to get the short answer here, but I, sure. but I want to pique some interest in in reading this book uh, by the audience. How does one live a life of significance? In short, just give us a couple of bullets, if you would. Yeah. Well. We define a life of significance as a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. Now, for a believer, maybe you could say a kingdom purpose. You can define it more specifically. But basically, the way you do it, from my perspective, is you learn the lessons you're crucible, in my case, by colossally bad assumptions and mistakes. You live in light of your design. You anchor your vision in your fundamental beliefs and values, which can be used by Christian faith. And I think a vision that's going to have staying power often is formed from the ashes of your crucible. Out of your pain, and, we, and our own podcast, Beyond the Crucible, we've had people with victims of abuse, paraplegic, quadriplegic, business failure, believer or not believer, the key to their moving on and finding a lasting vision is to use their pain for a purpose in service of others. So, when you think about a life of significance or legacy, you know, how do you, what do you want said at your eulogy, your funeral? It's the things that are eternal, from my perspective, that have lasting value. And for the believer, it's got to have some kingdom purpose, from my perspective, the vision you have for your life. So a life of significance for a believer that's uh, anchored in a God-given calling, then I think you have a much greater chance that when you meet the Lord, of him saying, well done, good and faithful servant, which is what we all want. So you want to, you want to increase the probability of that happening, live a life that you give against a believer anchored in a, uh, a God-given calling. Uh, not to mention to live a, a peaceful life with purpose and uh, contentment even tomorrow uh, on this earth. What you just described is absolutely essential. And there's so much to say there about my self-sufficiency and turning, and, and you've talked throughout this conversation about becoming Christ-sufficient, leaning on Him, turning to Him, and trusting in Him, and that is exactly how you recovered from this uh, crucible that you talk about. Uh, the unfair question, which is totally off-subject, is <laughs> <laughs> where, where in the world you've been, you know, you're Harvard-educated, Oxford-educated, and you've had lots of life experiences. You've lived in Australia and, and in the U.S. now for many years. You've been engaged in boards. You're engaged in business today. Talk about the state of the American economy 
and maybe even this political environment just briefly. Are we headed off of a cliff? And I know the question's unfair and off the subject, and you feel free to <laughs> feel free to punt. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But but, no. but just talk yeah. about that because I think as as students who are listening to this yeah. hear your voice and your experience, they'd want me to ask you that question. There, they sure. probably, if I didn't, they'd say, "Why'd you let a guy from Harvard yeah, with all yeah. that experience get off the hook?" So. <laughs> Help us with well, that. you know, it's so hard to know. I mean, there's for thousands of years people have thought, God, the world's going to end. I mean, imagine living in the midst of World War One or World War Two. How you know you would think Jesus must be coming, and you know, exactly, we will never know when when it's coming. So, yes, I'd say objectively, in the U.S., the world uh, life is politics, and everything is about as divided as there have been, and when you've got a divided government. Divided politics is very difficult to have economic policies that uh, people will embrace that hopefully are sensible. So I think it's it's very, very sad. I think one of the things I try and do in Christian leadership is I do my level best to stay off of politics. I grew up in a newspaper family, so I follow it as closely as anybody, I'd say. Right. Uh, so it's not like I don't have opinions. But what I try and do is bring people together. Because when you ask people left or right, do you believe that life should have meaning and purpose? They'll say, well, oh, absolutely. They might disagree on exactly how that looks like economically, politically, but I prefer to, I think we need to do a better job of uniting people around what we agree. And there's too much money and politics in the sense of that goes to forcing people to disagree. There's no money, there's no return on investment in getting people to agree. That's not where you make money. If you looked at the political economy side of the, of the equation, so I get how the economics work in politics. I do understand it. But right. you know, you've got to be willing to fight the natural economic political forces. I'm using economic in a very specific sense. And say, okay, I get it. I'll get much more money by selling bombs. But is that good for the country? And I don't care if it's left or right. It's not so much whether you're right or wrong in, in the sense that Right. How can we come together and get something done? How can we bring people together rather than be so purist about left or right and just nothing gets done? It's like right. I say in leadership in general, do you want to be 100% right and get nothing done? Or how about 80% right and maybe, you know, getting a lot done? Mm. I mean, nobody's willing to go for 80%. Everybody wants 100% pure. So, yeah, I think if people had a bit more humility and a bit more sense of how can we find unity, which to me is more of a Jesus approach. Exactly. Um, doesn't mean you deny your beliefs. I'm not for denying your beliefs. I don't mean compromise beliefs, but so often there are things that have, not, have less to do with beliefs but more decisions, like even in a school board or a church board. Do we invest 100000 in Initiative A or Initiative B? That's typically not a moral decision. It's a wisdom decision. Right. There are moral decisions. But then there are other areas where you can legitimately compromise. Uh, and so there's just, there's not enough of that. So anyway, I don't know if that gets the request. Uh, it does. Find a little bit more common ground, you get a whole lot more done. It does. And, and I agree. And this polarization that we experience is, I think, frustrating for uh, all of us. And as Christians, we should take that perspective that you just outlined. I cannot thank you enough for uh, taking this time, work. This has been a special time. I hope our audience will look for your book, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance by Warwick Fairfax. 
And I uh, hope they'll look uh, for your podcast as well, Beyond the Crucible, uh, which is available through all major podcasting channels. So thank you so much for being with us. It has really been a pleasure. Well, thanks so much, John. And I love what you do and at Relentless Truth. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Folks, I hope you'll like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. Until next week. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.